Generating traffic and sales can be a challenge for online merchants. But selling on the Walmart marketplace puts your products in front of millions of customers who shop on walmart.com. And right now, sellers who join Walmart Marketplace can save up to 50% on referral and fulfillment fees for the first 90 days. So get started today. Head over to marketplace.walmart.com savings. That's marketplace.walmart.com savings. Welcome to E-Commerce Conversations, a podcast by Practical E-Commerce. What is going on, Internet? Eric Van Holtz back again with another E-Commerce Conversations. Hope all is well on the other side of the Internet. On the other side of the Internet for me is probably one of the most famous content marketers out there. Is that true? Pep? Pep with Conversion XL? That's not how I identify myself. How do you identify yourself? Let's hear it. I would call myself an entrepreneur because... You know, you are what you repeatedly do. And I do produce and publish content too and market it. So it's not wrong. But yeah, so I run three businesses actively and yeah, business. All right. So what are those three businesses? Which is kind of like taking the most of your soul at this point? Hmm. So 10 years ago, I started CXL as a conversion optimization agency. And then five years later, I added a e-learning arm to it. And so we spun off the agency into Spiro, which is a leading conversion optimization agency. And, and CXL is now an e-learning company. And then two years ago, I started Winter, which is a B2B SaaS company. And today in Spiro, I have no active role other than being on the board. In CXL and, and Winter, I'm all in. On Winter, I'm more tactical, hands-on. I'm doing support and onboarding and, you know, things like that. And on CXL, I'm more strategic, like where are we going? Things like that. Yeah. I feel like for me, that that's the goal for, you know, my projects is to move into this kind of like strategic or like a board. But also there's just something about like being on the ground of an early project and getting those early wins and, mm -hmm. you know, starting things. Do you find it difficult to find balance or is it because you waited until your businesses were at a certain point that you could tackle these new projects? I've always been like an entrepreneurial guy, like starting things. And, you know, even before business, you know, like the party organizer and in college, I was like the class president and part of student organizations. And so I just like to start shit, which is, you know, also I don't know three businesses. Like, it's not like I needed more. I just want, I, you know, it just comes. And so I'm also, I think, strongest in this zero to one phase where, you know, you got to know your strengths. and. My strengths are not like spreadsheets and operations. And so when the business gets to a certain size, there are other people who are far better than me doing that kind of stuff. Yeah, so today I balance myself between two businesses, mainly CXL and Winter. And it is hard, mainly in the mentally, the context switch. So it's not a journey I strongly recommend. Yeah, I found that I'm trying to start a, a new brand in a similar space for grooming beauty and moving from a strategic role to an execution role is very, very challenging. Like I've almost essentially lost my abilities to run my calendar, you know, to like mm. show up on time to like email people back in a timely manner. Yeah. I, I also feel like, like, you know, just in terms of life, life has seasons, you know? So when I started the business 10 years ago, I stayed up like 
late into the night writing blog posts and like hustling, like putting in a lot of time muscle. And today, you know, I'm getting older, I have two kids and wife, and you know, you need balance in all things. And so I'm kind of like, I have less time hustle in me. They're going to like work smarter. And I do feel frustrated in winter where, you know, the business is early stage, so there's less money and resources available. And then I do roll my eyes when I need to do more, some technical shit for like some things I just don't want to do anymore. You know, I don't want to write blog posts anymore, really. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I share the kind of same problem. And my fear that I have is like, I'm throwing good money after bad, you know, trying to build something up that may or may not be feasible in the market. True. Yeah. So like, how do you like kind of, you know, manage those expectations or make sure that you just don't start a project that becomes a money suck that, you know, all these resources go in and then they never come back out? It's hard because it is a bet, right? It is a gamble. I mean, not like slot machine gamble. If you're like, you're more in control of things. Yeah. Sometimes I do wonder, especially it's easy to get caught in the like the comparison trap. Oh, look at that startup, like how fast they're like growing. And so with winter, this is year one for us. And we're gonna do like 450k this year for a year one bootstrap, totally solid result. Do I want more? Absolutely, I want more, you know. And like look at all these other guys like doing you know, whatever, 10 million in year one. You know, I also want that. So it's it's important to manage your inner game there and not play the comparison game, but Look at your progress. Yeah, I mean, I think that's going to be a, a never-ending battle, or at least a never-ending battle that I've faced. And it's a good reminder. It's, you know, like, where are you at today versus where are you at yesterday? Not where, you know, your competitor is at. Or... Yeah, you can only truly be happy if you look over your shoulder and, and measure your progress. Whereas if you look at the distance between you and where you want to be, like the dream, the goal, and you just measure the gap between where you are now and where you want to go, you're going to be always miserable. Like, because, you know, it's a moving target. You know, it's like the horizon. You, you keep marching towards the, whatever number it is, and then you'll never get there. You're from Estonia, right? Yep. When did you move to the States? Uh, I want to say 2008, 2009, something like this. Okay. What I'm always curious to hear is just like a non-native born person's interpretation of what it's like to be in America and, and what the opportunities are like or the culture is like that is different from what you experienced growing up in Estonia? Well, I'm not an economic migrant and I don't identify with the immigrant thing at all. When I read people are like, oh, we're the immigrants. Like, that's not me. That's not how I think of myself. I'm here because of a girl. You know, I'm, I fell in love with a girl from Austin and it's just, just random. And I was already an entrepreneur before that was already making money so i didn't come here for the economic opportunity you know so it's completely for other reasons um i mean i've been here now long enough where i've kind of forgotten what the difference is i mean europe and the united states for the most part are very similar you know like the western culture so it was a pretty easy seamless integration transition yeah. And so you just, you've always had that entrepreneurial fire mm -hmm. inside of you. Yeah. The main thing was like my other businesses before were in other languages. So, you know, I was big in Estonia and I had built a business in Panama, Central America. And when I came to the States, I was like, well, when I started my blog, Conversion Excel blog in 2011, I was like, well, blogging in English, as you know, 
not in my native language. It felt daunting in the beginning, but then, you know, got over it. One thing you talked about earlier was you're built for zero to one, and then you kind of hand it over to people once a, a business has established. Like, first of all, at what point do you know the time is right to start moving it over? And then the second question is like, how do you find those people? So in my case, so I started a consulting company and then what happened to me personally was just, I got tired of consulting. And even though I was at the top of my game, so I was recognized as, you know, the conversion optimization guy. And so basically I was like retiring at my peak. I just couldn't do it anymore. I got burned out. And so I was actively looking for a way out. And what I did was we surveyed our you know, email list and asked, what else could we sell to you if you know we were smart enough to sell it to you? And they said, oh, courses and whatever, things like that. And uh, okay, e-learning, that's a new challenge. Great. And at the time, my team at the agency was, they were afraid to like, can the business survive my departure? Because I was also the name. But we had other managers in place. So the company was at a time big enough where there was like middle management, so to speak. And I have a co-founder and that co-founder is different from me. He's not like a starter. He's like a operations admin. So he wasn't maybe building and thinking how to make this bigger, but he was like running the ship without changing the ship. And now at me doing winter and this is similar dynamic. So I have like heads off. I've head of growth, head of ops, head of product who manage teams. And so really the day-to-day -day execution is, is run by these people. Uh, and I'm like at CXL and, and I'm like, you know, vision and strategy still recruiting for key roles. So I think that is the key step. So you have people who are like functional heads in place that you trust. And I have talked to other entrepreneurs about whether you groom from inside versus, you know, recruit from outside. And I haven't really had the experience of recruiting from outside. So it's possible to make it work, I'm sure. And I really nurse it from inside. So if somebody who's showing promise, you know, like somebody who's proactive. So the guy running our agency today, he was just from day one, he was super proactive, like owning shit. Always a good sign. Yeah. So you're looking for that fire. And then the agency is essentially hands off. Like you're no longer doing strategy there. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm completely out. So I think there was one year of transition where I still did work for the agency too. And I was part of some accounts and whatever. But now like, yeah, I've been out four years or something. I mean, just a quarterly board meeting and that's yeah. it. A lot of entrepreneurs, I, I feel like want to sell the business rather than kind of move into this board, what was your decision process behind keeping the business? I guess you got to look at like compared to two options. So agency, it's not an easy business to sell. And two, the valuation is not a factor of revenue, but EBITDA. And agencies are not very profitable. You know, a 20% profit margin is great. And so an exit, if you want to sell, then, you know, a really good agency gets like a 5X multiple on their EBITDA. And so you do the math here, like, well, how much money are we looking at here? Like, actually, not, not a lot. <laughs> so it's not like a subscription business, or a SaaS business where it's like 85% gross margins. And then you can get, you know, 10x multiples on your ARR, something like this. So that was like 
just a math question, right? And so I'm not saying that I'm opposed to exit down the line, but the business just needs to get bigger for the numbers to make sense. And it's a generous cash cow because really how I've ended up with three businesses is that business number one was profitable enough so I could invest the profits in a new line of business. And now I have two businesses that are making annual profit and use those profits to build start winter. I think for SaaS businesses, and I'm not that sure about e-commerce, you know this better than I do, but for SaaS businesses, really 10 million annual recurring revenue is like the spot where multiples get more generous. It's like sustainability milestone. Like if your business is 2 million a year, you can go under tomorrow because shit can happen. Whereas if you reach 10 million, it's more solid, you know? Going back to the transition to the team member, you know, how do you, you know, I think there's a lot of bootstrap entrepreneurs who love this idea of like promoting from within. The question I always have is, you know, like a leadership role like this, do you introduce equity into the equation or is it just going to be like a, you know, profit sharing bonus or like, how do you make sure that they feel tied to the results of the business? But at the same time, you know, like I'm a control freak, you know, like the idea of giving up equity is very challenging to me. And yeah. I don't know if that's a limiting thing or how you've dealt with that. Yeah. So obviously there's no one right answer here. So it all depends. In SaaS, I think you got to do equity because that's just really the norm of the industry at large. Like you can't recruit top names without some, you know, stock grants for like VPC level people and stock options for everyone else. Whereas in agency world, that is uncommon or unheard of, really. Like nobody gives equity. And by nobody, I mean just very few. And so on the agency side, we haven't given out any equity. We have had like profit sharing plans and things like that and hitting certain milestones. So it's like virtual equity, you know. I want to segue into, you know, conversion and talking about conversion, e-commerce conversion. I think one of the things I've always struggled with is just, you know, at our size, uh, upper seven figure business, like the data is always going to be kind of money. And like, how should a leader within an e-commerce organization interpret data? How much faith should they put in the data? And then like, what is the process to really make sure they're moving in the right direction based on data rather than just gut feel? Or, you know, when should you just kind of go on your gut and, and not invest the resources that it takes to do proper testing? Yeah, I guess it really depends on what scope of decisions we're talking about here. Like changing our positioning brand and the future of the company, huge. And I think here, like, yes, you need data, market signals and your own data and so on to make a bet. And you use a lot of your founder, you know, I, I want to say... Uh, Opinion is maybe the wrong world here, but point of view on where it's going to go. Whereas if it's a micro decision, like optimizing your product page layout, like you remove all your opinions and it's very easy to just do a pure data-driven decision there because you can measure every click, every scroll. It depends on data. So at your size business, you know, you'll have adequate data for that kind of stuff and to do data-driven conversion optimization and experimentation. I like what uh, you know, Jeff Bezos has popularized how fast or slow to make uh, decisions. It's two by two matrix. Like basically one axis is like how reversible is the decision? Should it be wrong? And the other one is like the impact of the decision. And so for only in one quadrant, when if it's irreversible and high impact, you should decide slowly. 
in every other case, you decide fast. Mm-hmm. And that's also how I like to think about these things. You mentioned Bezos. Where are you taking a lot of your inspiration or where are you finding a lot of your resources to learn? Yeah, I think when I was younger, earlier in my career, I read ferociously whoever. And today, also I want to have, you know, I guess more strategic things on my plate. I'm much more careful where I get my information from. And I really choose it based on what is important to me today. So for the last year, I've been really nerding out on all kinds of strategy stuff, you know, strategy books, strategy thinkers, you know, anything from, you know, I don't know if you want specific names or, and today, like right now, I'm really focused on studying network effects because winter is essentially a two-sided marketplace. And so I need more education here. And so I'm right now reading Andrew Chen's book, The Cold Start Problem. It's very relevant to the challenge at the hand. Yeah. I think for me, it's always kind of been like just trying to find really intelligent people and learn from them. Books have always been challenging and I've always kind of appreciated like the in-person experience. And uh, you put on the conference, what about a month ago, I guess, bringing people back together and allowing that exchange of ideas and, you know, kind of that growth through communication. For sure. I've been throwing conferences for 10 years. Usually, you know, before COVID, it was two conferences a year. And absolutely like that space and also like informal hangouts with fellow entrepreneurs or other, you know, just adjacent business people, business lunches, very inspirational. Yeah. I mean, and today I'm also consuming more and more micro content. I want to say Twitter and LinkedIn, you know, for SaaS stuff, you know, Jason Lemkin, everybody's favorite. Also mine. Those the guys brilliant. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned LinkedIn. Before we hit record, you said like LinkedIn's driving significant amount of volume for you, isn't it? Oh, yeah. For winter, um, I want to say 90% of the demo pipeline I'm generating through my LinkedIn content. Is it just organic? Are you boosting it? or Organic. And just every single day, for years already, every single day I'm posting on Twitter and LinkedIn. Often 80% the same stuff. Sometimes on Twitter, I mean, I'm more casual. I tweet more often. On LinkedIn, it's just you know, once a day. And... So I have like an overarching strategy of like, because I'm driving a narrative, a point of view and expressing what I actually believe in. So it's not bullshit, but I'm being deliberate and careful how I go about it. And so I'm raising awareness around certain issues and offering a point of view on how things should be done and what somebody should think about. And obviously my business is then the way to do those things. So it's very effective. What is the concept I'm looking here? Is it? Video is podcast recordings, kind of clips like that. So, yeah. So the video podcast recordings, that's more like the podcast promo clips. And it never gets as much engagement as just written content on LinkedIn. I'm surprised, actually. So LinkedIn, in my case, at least, they strongly prefer written content. And so I'm mainly talking about things like positioning, messaging, differentiation, go-to-market strategy. So those topics and buyer intelligence. And so Winter obviously is a B2B buyer intelligence tool that helps people with positioning, differentiation, messaging, all those things. And so I'm just opening people's eyes to look at the problems they have through a new lens. Yeah. And then like, is there a lot of conversation that happens in LinkedIn, like in the comments that you'll continue that conversation forward or is it? It could be, yeah. So I think LinkedIn is technically great for discussion 
Well, I mean, but you could sink your whole day into social media and never get anything done. So I'm more like a come in, post my ideas and fuck off. And I'll come every now and then, you know, maybe twice a day. I'll check the comments and reply if they're good. High quality. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, like what is the future of winter look like? You're going to continue to grow it. Obviously, you've got this $10 million annual run rate as one of your short-term targets, I would assume, you know, mm -hmm. like just continue yeah. to build that out and build the product out. And Yeah. So I got two bootstrap businesses, CXL and Spiro. So those are kind of, as an entrepreneur, like from a personal perspective, this is like my safety net or kind of like my, got my back kind of secured. And so with winter, I can take bigger risks. And so this has opportunity to be really big because we're tackling a big opportunity in the market. And here I'm also looking to include possibly some venture capital and play a game that I haven't played before, which is, you know, be a venture-backed startup. So it's new learnings because like I've done the bootstrap slow growth uh, path. And so it's more exciting for me to try something else. There's new learning, you know, like more interesting for me. Yeah. You mentioned you've got like that network effect, which I think is to a certain degree, like that chicken or the egg, you know, like mm -hmm. you can't do one thing without the other. How do you start that process? How do you kickstart it? I feel like that's got to be the hardest part. Yeah. Well, Andrew Chen has this nice quote that I love, which is like, if you have a chicken and an egg problem, buy the chicken. And so that's really what we did as well. So on the on winter, it's supply side and demand side, much like in Uber, there's, you know, riders and drivers. And so for us, it's software vendors, which is the demand side that need the supply side of people buying B2B software. And so in order to sell something to the vendors, I needed to create the supply side first. And we really, we got it with money. So we invested money in recruiting a bunch of people. And also we, you know, we paid them money. So what, what we do is, let's say, you know, if you work in marketing in SaaS, MarTech vendors want to hear your opinion about their sales pitch or their you know, marketing copy or whatever. So, and then in, in order to give that feedback or facilitate, there's money involved to compensate for that time. And so we really threw money at at the supply side, much like Uber did, you know, driver sign-up bonuses and things like that. So it's really focusing on that supply side first and then, you know, like... That's the asset that you can sell then to the demand side. So you have something to generate demand for. Uh, so the, my pitch essentially is like, hey, so you're selling your, you know, let's say your HR software, payroll software, whatever. So you're selling to HR managers, directors of HR, you never wonder what you're saying on your website or in your emails or ads. How is it landing on your target audience? Are they like, wow, this is so interesting? Or are they more like, oh, this is so boring? Like, or which is which? What, what are you saying that's interesting and what's you know, boring? And then that creates curiosity in them. And in order for me to deliver on that value proposition, I need to have these people ready so I can put the marketing message in front of them. That's cool, man. Where can people like, you know, obviously we talked about your businesses. Where can people kind of learn more about you, follow you, you know, try using winter? Yeah, Twitter and LinkedIn, as I said, like I'm posting daily or almost every day. And I think the content is good. Like if you're into uh, strategy and go to market and competing on other things than features, then I'm your guy. And that's uh, P-E-E-P-L-A-J-A. That is accurate. And that's uh, Laha. Is that how you pronounce it? Or? Laya. Laya. Like a Y. Like a German J, like Jägermeister. Yeah, there you go. 
Sweet, man. Well, I appreciate you coming on, kind of sharing your experiences and building the businesses and keeping things going and, you know, spreading your brain juice as well. And it's kind of, kind of a weird way of saying it, but appreciate it, man. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. Yeah, man. Well, this has been another e-commerce conversations. Hope you guys were able to uh, pick up a nugget or two. Thanks, Pep, for coming by. Cheers. Keep on growing. Wow.